started one of those good thoughts, and that is to focus on God's Word. I do love those songs. Ancient words long preserved for our walk in this, in this world. The other thought I want us to consider is what is a fact? F-A-C-T, what is a fact? And a fact is something that is known or has been proven to be true. A thing that is known or proven to be true. So combining the wonderful words of life, let's think about three facts of life that can come our way out of this word. Three facts of life simply together for our encouragement uh, this evening. Three facts of life. This will not be anything new. Thank God for that. Thank God we're not trying to find anything new, but we are trying to go back in time. We're trying to go back to this special book written long ago, long preserved, but so special uh, to us. Okay, so fact number one is God uses, God uses unusual people. God uses, he uses unusual people to accomplish his will sometimes. God uses unusual people to accomplish his will sometimes. Let's look at several examples of this. Genesis chapter 20, you might recall Abraham and Sarah on one of their journeys. They come to a place called, called Gerar, and the king there is Abimelech, and as they have done, they decide to tell the king that Abraham and Sarah are brother and sister. They tell them that that Sarah is his sister, not his wife. And so the king Abimelech of Gerar, he takes Sarah in to be with him, and then God appears to him in a dream and says to him, basically, Abimelech, you are a dead man. But then later God says, not really, I know your heart. But notice how that after all this dream that Abimelech, unknown to, to be in the plan of God, comes out to Abraham and says, I'm picking up at Genesis uh, chapter 20, verse 9, Abimelech called Abraham and said, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. This is exactly what Abraham needed to hear. God uses a pagan king of Gerar to tell a great truth to Abraham. Notice how that in his language he uses the word sin. He says, in your lying to me, you have brought a great sin to my kingdom. What did you think? What, what were you thinking? Why did you do this thing? Abraham will go on to say, I didn't think the fear of God was in your kingdom. And Abraham was greatly mistaken. Another example of God using unusual people to accomplish his will is found in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. You remember at the end of the life of Joseph, toward the end and toward the end of his life, the lives of his brothers, his brothers were still worried about what they had done to Joseph, how evil they had been against him, what's going to become of them now. 
at this time, but Joseph assures them, Genesis 50 and verse uh, 20, Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? Great question. Do not fear for am I in the place of God? That's verse 19. And then Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant it evil against me, true, but God meant it for good to bring about many people who should be kept alive as they are today. So God used the iniquity, the transgressions of Joseph's brother, brothers to preserve the lineage, to preserve the good, the good nation here that he, from which he would bring all sorts of wonderful things uh, for the earth. That's Genesis 50 verse uh, 20. Also think about Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 13 where God uses a boiling pot to show that he is going to bring punishment against his people Judah. That boiling pot is going to be tilting from the north. And what he means by that is eventually because of the sins of Judah he's going to bring, he's going to bring the nation of Babylon against them. Okay, So this pot is tilting uh, downward toward uh, the north, from, toward the south from the north. God uses eventually, yes, he uses the, the pagan, the evil nation of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to punish his own people. Now, the prophet Habakkuk, just, just as a side note here, the prophet Habakkuk, much, much of that little book centers on Habakkuk's complaint against God about this very thing. And when you read Habakkuk, okay, the first complaint you get from the prophet is how, how evil people around him are becoming. Lord, what are you going to do about our own people becoming so evil? And then the Lord responds and says, I've got a plan. I've got a plan. I'm going to bring the Chaldeans down from the north. And then Habakkuk turns around and complains about his use of the Chaldeans, the, the nation of Babylon. Okay. But God uses those people in an unusual way in order to accomplish uh, his will. If we go on into the New Testament, Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, notice that there are two men. They are both possessed with demons. And the demons speak out to Jesus before Jesus cast them out, the demons speak out and they say, what have you to do with us, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Notice what those demons knew. They knew that Jesus is indeed the son of God. Also notice that there were, they knew there was a time coming when their judgment, that Jesus would be judging them that they would receive punishment from the hands of the Lord. These are just unusual circumstances, unusual people that God uses sometimes to speak truth or to accomplish His will. Another example is Matthew chapter 27 and verse 19. This is when Jesus is before Pilate. Pilate's sitting on the judgment seat. Pilate's wife sends a message and says concerning Jesus, Matthew 27, 19. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. So notice that she refers to Jesus 
as a righteous man, as she should do, because Jesus had no sin. He never, never did a, a single thing wrong, have nothing to do with his righteous man. She goes on to say, I have suffered many things during the night because of this man in a dream. Isn't that pretty cool that God's messing with the dream of that, that ruler's wife? And that comes to, to bear on the proceedings of the trial of Jesus. Okay. So Matthew 27, verse 19. We mentioned this last week, Luke 23, verse 35. As, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, those on the ground are mocking him. They're saying, if you're the son of God, come down. You saved others, supposedly. Why don't you save yourself? You are the chosen one. Luke 23, 35. And that's so true. Jesus is the chosen one. So notice that sometimes divine truth is spoken by those that we would not think would have an interest in truth. Now a prime example of this, and you want to turn to John chapter 11, one of the most wicked men in the life of Jesus, in the lifetime of Jesus, is a high priest by the name of Caiaphas. Caiaphas. He was an enemy of Jesus. When you get into the trial of Jesus, you find out from Matthew 26 and verse 3 that he's the one who led the plot to arrest Jesus and put him on trial. When you get on into the trial and you get on over into Matthew 26, verse 62 and following, it is Caiaphas the high priest who comes up with this charge of blasphemy against Jesus. And all that had to happen was Caiaphas says, you know, are you the son of God? And Jesus said, you say that I am, which isn't a way of saying, yes, I am. Okay. And then he says, what further need do we have? What further, witnesses, what further need do we have for witnesses? This man is committing blasphemy. Okay. Caiaphas is also alive and working against Christ in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 6. He's, when Peter and John is arrested, it is this man. It is this man who is leading the proceedings against Peter and John because they had healed this lame man in the name of Jesus. So right here in John 11, we have Caiaphas speaking. Now they're, they're really concerned. You know, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. So therefore, many Jews were be, beginning to believe on Jesus. And Caiaphas and these other guys in power, they were scared that their whole little setup was going to be taken away by the Romans. Okay? Because if they can't have any people, then they're not going to have any power. So many were beginning to believe in Jesus. And so Caiaphas comes up with this plan. So let's pick up here in John 11 and verse 47 the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them named Caiaphas spoke up, who was high priest in that year, and said, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now he did not say this of his own accord, John steps in here, tells us about. He did not say this of his own accord, 
But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Okay. And so look what God is doing. He's using someone unusual, in fact, unusually evil, to actually present some truths. It is true that Jesus is going to die an atoning death for others. It is true he's going to die a death for, for everyone, not just the Jewish nation, but everybody scattered abroad on the nation. And as he dies for people, they're going to learn of his goodness. They're going to surrender to him, and they're going to be gathered into one. One what? One body, the church. And so Caiaphas had no idea all the truths he's presenting there, but God used him to present those truths. So one fact tonight I wanted us to just just to try to swallow a little bit is how God often uses unusual people to proclaim a good truth. Okay. And one of the primary lessons from this is to understand how unlimited the power of God really is. Think about how unlimited the power of God is. We, we know God spoke this world into existence. We know that with one word, this world's going to be gone and, and the dead are going to be raised. We know the power of God. That's one dimension of the power of God. But here's another dimension. How does God do this? It's, it's absolutely uh, remarkable that God can, can so know what he wants to be spoken and he can so know ahead of time what he wants to happen that he can use anyone in whatever state of mind or state of life that they're in to bring about what he wants to be done. I just find that staggering when you think about the power of God. And it tells us that we can always trust him. We can put our trust in him. We must remember Jesus Christ. He is the stone that was rejected by the builders but that stone became what? It became the head of the corner. What they thought they were doing as evil, God used that to bring about some of the best eternal goodness that can ever be uh, described. Okay. And before we leave this idea, remember that it's, it's really about the pursuit of truth more than anything. No matter... No matter how we come to know the truth, as long as this truth is in the Bible, no matter where we hear about it, we need to, we need to embrace it. You know, if we hear the truth of something mentioned on the radio, if it's in accordance with the Bible, then that's, the Bible, that's something we embrace. Okay? If, if we hear someone who doesn't have any, any intention of all of coming to worship God, but if they say something that's in accordance to God's will, then we embrace that truth as well. And we tell them so. Hey, did you just know? Did you just know you just spoke a truth from the Bible? What about that? You want to learn more about that? And so first, God uses, uses unusual people. Second fact of life is God punishes sinners. That's our second fact tonight. God punishes uh, sinners. This is a huge truth, so we'll try to just break it down into two uh, categories. There are some facts to realize, and then there's the motivation involved. So let's quickly look at some facts about God's punishment. God punishes uh, sinners. First of all, it's so very necessary because of who God is. 
Evil must be punished, you see, because God is much too holy for anything else to happen. Habakkuk 1.13 says that the Lord God is of so pure eyes, his eyes are so pure that he cannot even look on evil. Okay. He's just that good. He's just that holy. Okay. So God cannot ignore sin as if it has not happened or as if it is not in existence. It must be punished. Psalm 89, uh, 14 says that, um, that justice and righteousness is the foundation of God's throne. Justice and righteousness. God cannot overlook that which is wrong. It must be punished. That is why, that is why he sent Jesus Christ to die for us because he knows that as he deals with us, we need, we need the death of Jesus uh, in our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 21, he who knew no sin, Jesus, uh, became sin in our behalf, that we might be reconciled to God, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And you remember Isaiah 53 in verse uh, 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so it's because of God's holiness and his justice and his righteousness okay, that he cannot ignore evil. It must be punished, but it's also why Jesus came and, and died for us. Now, a second fact about God's punishment is that it is not only necessary, but it's good. It is good. Abraham asked the question in Genesis 18, 25, shall not the judge, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Okay. God is a good judge. Any judge that ignores that which is wrong, any judge that would turn a blind eye to wrongdoers, of course, is not a good judge. So God's punishments are good. They are, they are good. Can you imagine, if you just let your mind, well, my mind went back to it because I, I read recently about some of the Nazi soldiers back in the time of Hitler and, and those terrible days that in their killings, they would take teenage girls and just hang them on a tree. And while they were losing their life on that tree, they, they would just laugh about it. They would laugh at the noises uh, that would be made. Okay. So is there any way in our mind to think that those types of individuals will have the same destiny as, say, a righteous Dorcas that we read about in Acts uh, chapter 9? There's no way in our minds we can consider that that would ever be something that happened. So from that standpoint, we understand that God's justice, that God's punishment, a second fact is that it is, it is good. It is good. Think about uh, an old west town. And the town is peaceful, but then uh, after a little while, uh, some real outlaws come in the, the local sheriff cannot handle them before long. They are taking things from people. They're taking over different public buildings and 
they're treating individuals and women in, with, in disgraceful ways. And finally, somebody, somebody gets word out to some U.S. Marshals, and the Marshals were able to make their way there, and they clean up that town. They take care of business. Do you think that after the business is taken care of, after those Marshals come in there and, and punish and take those bad guys away or even kill them if necessary, do you not think the, the townsfolk will be, will be celebrating? Of course they would be. Why? Because justice is good. Okay. So God's punishments are necessary. God's punishments are good. Okay. But God's punishments are also honorable. And we say this because, you know, God honors the decisions we make, even our bad decisions. If if a person decides to ignore God, to remain alienated and separate from him all during their lifetime, then God's going to honor that decision that that person has made by giving him the punishment that he has worked so hard uh, to earn. Now, atheists like to say, well, if God was really a good God, then at the end of time, he would take these, these uh, people, these unholy people who have cared nothing about God all during their lifetime and force them into his good presence. That makes no good sense at all. God made us in his image with the complete ability to understand what he wants us to understand and to so align our lives in the way we ought to. And if a person chooses to stay away from that, then God's going to honor uh, that decision. Now, let's get to the main part about God's punishments. God punishes sinners. And we ought to use that as tools of motivation. Okay. Let me quickly mention three tools of motivation. First is the fear of God. The fear of God. Okay. Proverbs 8.13 says that to fear the God, fear God is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Paul says in Romans 3 and verse 18, the reason that wickedness is upon the face of the earth is because there's no fear of God in their eyes. Jesus says in Matthew 10 and 28, Fear not him who is able to kill the body, but after that he has no more that he can do, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Okay. We know the fear of God is so desperately needed. It helps me to review these fundamental ideas so much. Stories told of a young man who's at a dance, and he asks his date, says, "You know, you want to you want to get away from all these people? I know a little place down the hallway here we can go and we can just be alone." And so she goes with him, and they get to their little place there, and and he looks at her, and she looks at him, and finally she says, "You know, God is watching. God is watching us." And in his mind, the young man says, "Well, there goes that." And then he says, I guess we better go back inside. What does she bring to bear? She brought the fear of God into the conversation, you see. The reason there's evil. And this is, we ought to use this as we encourage each other and as we try to motivate others to serve God. The reason there's evil, the reason that we go our own way is because we've lost sight of the fear of God. We've lost the fear of God, the reality of the fear of God in our lives. Hebrews 
uh, 10, 29-31 says, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, the story of a blind man who got on a bus, and we got on the bus, another man got up and gave him his, his a seat. You say, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Well, wait just a minute. The, the person who gave him his seat was the bus driver. Now what? Is that a good thing? It's not a good thing. But the only reason to say that is, look how that little piece of information changes our whole outlook on, on the situation. Okay. And that's what the fear of God does. If the fear of God is known as a reality in life, it changes one's entire perspective on, on what's going on, on what's really uh, going on. If a young man say, comes up to you and says, you know, I've got a pornography problem. No, you don't. You've got a fear of God problem. Okay. No pornography problem. You just don't understand the fear of God. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 18, 7 through None. He says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with only one eye than having two eyes be cast into a hell of fire. So, in view of God's punishment, one motivation is the fear of God. A second tool of motivation that comes from God's punishment nature is death itself. Is death. It's death. Okay. I think about the thief, the thieves on the cross surrounding Jesus there, Luke 23, 39. At, 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 at one point, as they're hanging on the cross, both of them are yelling out against Jesus. But one of the thieves stops himself after a while and says to the other thief, Do you not fear God? This man, talking about Jesus, has done nothing amiss. He's done nothing wrong. But we, indeed, we are receiving our due recompense of reward. Now, I wonder what caused the the change in this one thief there on the cross. Well, what do you think? One thing could be, if you go back up to Luke 23, 34, we hear what Jesus said when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what to do. Perhaps that caused the thief to begin to change. But I'll tell you something else that had to be in play here, and that is he's about to die. The pressure of death was bearing down upon him. There's no way he's coming off that cross. No one has ever survived the the Roman crucifixion. He's about to die. And that pressure of death is coming Upon him. If you get a chance, you can easily um, YouTube some speeches of the, uh, the man who passed away, who one of the founders of, of the Apple uh, Corporation, uh, Steve Jobs, and he is famously quoted, and you see it everywhere, so it must be true. But he he said one of his motivations was to was realizing that he would soon be dead. He would soon be dead. And I was talking to Brent yesterday, and we were just looking out here, and, and Brent dreams about things. Okay. Such a good fellow. Hey, you know this about him. What about your husband, Brent? But 
He just casually mentioned, you know, this would be a good place for a cemetery out here. Well, I said, that's what they used to do. You know, used to all churches were surrounded by by a graveyard, a cemetery. Do you ever wonder if that was, I'm being kind of serious, was that helpful? Was that helpful? Because it's a constant reminder that we're all going to be there. If Jesus doesn't come during our lifetime, we're all going to have a grave somewhere. And so another great tool of motivating ourselves, motivating others, is the tool of death. And then there is the motivation of the tool of hell itself. Is hell your favorite place you read about in the Bible? You can be honest. Is is that your favorite place to read about? Maybe it should be. I don't know. Should we be grateful for the existence of hell? Is there not some motivating factor? Is there any other way for God to be God other than there to be a place called hell? Spelled with a capital H. It's a real place. Isn't it much better to hear about it now than to feel it later? Isn't it much better that people would frown upon you for mentioning it now than for God to frown upon you for not mentioning it at all? If I remember right, all the smart guys who have done so much studying in the Bible, they always say that Jesus taught more about this place than he did any other place while he was on earth. Perhaps this was his number one subject of all. Let's notice a couple of verses, Matthew chapter 8 and then Mark chapter 9, just real fast. But in Matthew 8, Jesus talking about some faithful who will be able to come and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, but the sons of the kingdom. Notice this, Matthew 8, verse 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. Outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. The gnashing of teeth is evidence of pain. Of pain. Have you ever had to hold something in your mouth or bite down on something because something was going to be painful? I have. I have. Because when we were little and we got a cut on our knee or our foot, okay, most of the time, until my mom stopped him, my dad would pour gasoline or kerosene on it. Okay. And he would say, bite down on something, we'll get you. And he would do it. Okay. I'm still here, barely. But that actually happened. Mark chapter 9, verse 58. Mark chapter 9. Forty-eight. I believe it is. Mark chapter 9, 48. Jesus describing hell. He says, Where their worm does not die 
and the fire is not ever quenched. The fire will be bringing the pain and that never, ever stops. When it says the worm does not die, that's the gnawing anguish. Okay, that's the, that's the internal turmoil, turmoil that never uh, goes away. And then Revelation 14, Jesus speaks of this place and he says, this is a place where people will drink, Revelation 14, verse 10, where people will drink the wine of God's wrath. And it will be poured forth full strength into the cup of his anger. It's a place you don't want to be. Brother Tim was sharing his experience with the hot air balloons, not just one but evidently several, maybe even more than 10, one year, about 2013 or 14, just decided to land in his yard in his neighborhood. Because these guys going up in these balloons, they're not real sure where they're going to end up. I think that's just fascinating. Okay. That's another good reason not to go up. But he said their practice was, they came out, and evidently it's their practice that that when they land at someone's house, that they offer them a bottle of wine. Okay, and they offered Tim a bottle of wine. Well, here, okay, in not such a good way, God says there is something that the ungodly will drink, and that's the wine of God's wrath and anger. Fact number one, God uses unusual people. Fact number two, God punishes sinners. And we will save fact number three for another time. I had three facts in mind, but I wanted us to think about some, a couple of strong ideals about God so that we can become more interested in Him than ever before, but that we will realize that He is the true God. Romans 11:22 says that there are two major parts of God, his goodness and his severity. He is very severe towards sin. But oh how good he is. And the proof of that is the sending of his son. He did not spare his own son, Romans 8:32, but he gave him up for us all. Don't you want to be a follower of the Redeemer. And don't you want to make sure that you're going to go to that place called heaven and not the place called hell? Will you come this evening, right now, as we stand together, as we sing?